Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. Oswald I was unloved before I knew the word. I was fatherless before I was born. Daddy dead on the lawn cutting the grass his only gesture the most lasting one, when he named his unborn New Orleans boy after Robert E. Lee. Mother buried him by the end of that August afternoon, and so the scorn she schooled me in later, the sadness and the lack love and mistrust, was also there in the seventh-month womb. Her name is a word I hate, Marguerite, the one whose boys were a burden to her, I must have known this before I was three, that the world both owed and was against her. And among her many millstones was me, pawned off, sent to live or spending more time with babysitters, the orphanage, or aunts. She had her nothing jobs, the notion shop, the plate glass place, but poor was her name. Remarriage and divorce took us to Fort Worth, to the house where I could hear trains all day, and the solitude once imposed upon me became the isolation I longed for, and I was taught to feel, I don't think too much, the immense power of living alone. Empty house in the morning, empty house for lunch, and empty in the hollow evening. When they were home, I lay up on the roof and it seemed that I listened to the stars, elated at how they burned in silence. The view from the high window or the roof has always felt so familiar, and is part of the reason I did it, entering history and coming home atop that school book depository. She dragged me to the Bronx eventually, and dropped me into new schools with the same hate. I became a truant and took to the zoo instead. I skipped school to take the subway all day and made the dime at cost stretch. But I found in everyone's rush and apathy that the empty house in Fort Worth was on wheels, and the clarity I found in those cars, just turned 13, early 1953, carried me through the decade to Dallas and proved the care I desired was a disease. I never let on about needs or wants, and I refused to compete with the kids I already towered above, 
finding in the library what they would never learn. When I later defected to Moscow, I lied to a reporter and told her it was some little old lady's pamphlets that made me a Marxist, something about saving the Rosenbergs, but it wasn't. If I trace my history honestly, for the origin of everything I felt, it was mother who'd made me a Marxist. It was the subway and public schools. I was a Marxist because they hated it, and hate was something I could elicit, unlike the plain love that eluded me. And the play of it showed me my real aim, to be the one they remembered as a ghost, to be the one among them who disappeared, the one they were sure was an idiot, who was poor and had nothing but a drawl, the one who planted himself in their brains to flower years later in the papers, a nobody reappearing like the plague, the weak one, who had actually done something. It's no hard task to analyze the soul. You will complain and say that you skipped school or at an age took up some form of thought. You will say that you knew real loneliness and the silent intensity of books, half-read and barely understood but loved, and the deep fire and fever dreams of fame. But you stumbled only towards this poem. This is the way you choose to spend your time. Whereas my errors and naivete have made me the one to be read about. What follows is sometimes embarrassing, but only for you, who knows kindred shame, but never turned it into mystery. So mother took me back to New Orleans, rather than face the truancy music, and now I'm mocked for a northerner's twang. I drop out for the last time, and within a year I was in the Marines away from my loathed mother and still in love with Marx. Trained as a radar operator and stationed in Japan, maybe I traded secrets with communists there. Maybe a million things, but for sure I was scorned. For sure they thought I was a fag. For sure I didn't fit in to this new discipline and ended up court-martialed and in the brig for more than a month, standing up silent. This is the real tragedy, and let me indulge it only for a few more lines. That I am the fly on the wall worth following, the cipher to the cipher of your moment, and that you ignore the likes of da Vinci to follow my every earliest step. I am the one you ponder because it is my trajectory and not the poet's or philosopher's or statesman's life that defines what you know and how you live. I am your deepest Americanness, one of the first to emerge completely spoiled by the waste of technology and enlarged by suspicion, mistrust, and the half-knowledge of glittering outrage. Truth and beauty are nothing anymore to the life of resentful disappointment. Already stateside, I was done with them and lied my way to a hardship discharge, ostensibly to help my straitened mother. But instead, I sidestepped them for Russia within a month, 
slipping by as I always would. On the ship there I told my cabin mate there was no God, there are only bodies. But my God is actually history, and my life is only there, in its lens. Is anyone on that ship remembered except because I was also on board, and that I again made no impression as I rose and floated above them, enlarging myself through obscurity as I docked in London and flew to Helsinki and received an entry visa to Russia in only two days? Who else has done this? Dead at twenty-four, I never outlived the glory of my youth, my lonely genius. And now in Moscow, what had previously been a private vision passing within me was beginning its great reverberation. I was arriving where no one knew me, in a place where those that did would never go. Not six days in Moscow, I slipped my wrist. My citizenship request was refused, and the extension of my visa declined. I had a hundred dollars and orders to catch the evening train to Finland. Neither my letter of admiration for Russia, nor the balding official I met in person, persuaded anyone. Not the military secrets I'd share, nor the witness to rotten America I would gladly allow myself to be. That I'd only lived my dream for a week, that I was surrounded by KGB who had the means to find out what I was, and that it still was somehow all over. I lay in the bath of the Hotel Berlin. A note mentioned my long journey to death and how I loved life. But I had to do that. I had to pretend I wanted to die so that my blood would do what my words couldn't. And didn't it. While it took a few months, my strangeness broke. The largest bureaucracy in the world. And I stayed for two more years. I made a big show at our embassy and tried to renounce my citizenship. I talked to American reporters and ended up on page three, six paragraphs, in the New York Times, all as the Russians struggled to decide if I was a spy. From then until your time, it's been supposed my ignorance couldn't have gotten me so far, and so they considered that I was a new breed of CIA animal, so unlikely as to be the best fit a surface ineptitude bearing layers of genius, training, and secret orders. Their own paranoia made them play safe. No one dared a sudden move, even with me. And by late December, I was in Minsk, with a job, apartment, and allowance that few who had always lived there ever received. I remember an early morning there, the butcher shop, train station, groceries, Kirov Street, Raduga Street, bookstore. I rarely stopped and just watched the watchers. I worked at the radio factory, I assumed so they could assess my skill with such equipment. But surely a spy would not fall for this. And not being one, I had no knowledge to betray, even by accident. They had, I knew, dispatched armies of men behind me on the street to listen and look and note down or to 
bug my room with camera and microphone. Later, I turned the electricity off, but the meter went on bobbing and dancing. That was their equipment inhaling me, a transcriber, no doubt, in the next room. But all their efforts at tails and wiretaps only proved it was still a puzzle to them. At the same time, as my Russian improved, I openly tired of all the classes and meetings and compulsory lectures, not having the patience for such things, or for my radio work at all, really. There was a school for foreign languages in Minsk, and they hired English speakers to befriend me behind the mask of lessons in their language and mine, even as my drawl was studied to see if it was genuine. Quickly bored, it shamed me to realize that, like a good American, I had fallen myself for something merely new. And when a year after my arrival I was asked if I wanted citizenship, I requested a passport extension instead. It was as if I'd met socialism in the street and had finally spent some time with her, not with her books, but with her factories, her cold water, her winters, her pavement and realized this was not my name either. But that was the moment before Marina. Marina told the story of her aunt, who survived the war hiding ten days underground as the world split above her. She'd been in a German camp for nine months before she saw American planes and cried for the end. This was the same woman I met one night in March, 1961. Marina brought me home to her apartment, and I heard her say, Make him some coffee. Act cultured. I've brought an American. And this to a woman who'd lived such a life, as if some boy from Texas could touch that. Marina had come to Minsk from Leningrad, a girl unmoored who never knew her father. I lied when we met and told her my mother was dead, so Marina's early months with me were covered with the illusion that we were two orphans who had found each other. She went through what young Russian girls did, once nearly raped and once actually raped. Her first kiss came from a man playing guitar, a man who was lonely in Minsk, a student, a man who lived above her aunt and uncle and who on hot days played his guitar out the open window to serenade her, so she thought. Other times she went out on dates just for the dinner for the food, but it was horrible, holding the men off after, trying to give them enough to get away. When she came to Minsk, she met men like me, men who listened to jazz and Elvis Presley, and her eyes were always for Western things, American things. And when I appeared, I was immediately more interesting than every comparable man in the room. It was at a dance. She wore a red dress and white shoes, and her hair was done up French. Later, she said I'd only noticed her because the other girls had been there for hours by the time she arrived, all radiant. A week later was when I met her aunt. A month later I proposed and she accepted, and Marina and our daughter and I were in America the next summer.
The smartest people are still scouring those last months, and the stupidest are searching through them too, but there's nothing sinister about waiting. I scolded and cajoled two governments until they paid our way out and over. No, I didn't mention that I hit her, or that the abuse would only get worse as she remained a Russian woman stranded in America, knowing little English. For the year and more before Kennedy, she threatened to return, or I agreed that she should go, or that we all ought to, but America was our shared burden. And on the boat returning, I hid in the hold, and like some fugitive forced underground, I laid out on paper my memories of Minsk and its minutiae, comparing, as few could, life there and in America. I felt I had come down the mountain and was sure all the newspapers would greet me, but there was no press, not in New York or when we landed in Fort Worth. But there was Texas again, my mother, and some factory job no better than the one I had left. I made friends with the Russian community, but they weren't exiles but emigres who loved American excess and who pitied Marina and our poverty. They bought us things. They bought the baby clothes when all I wanted was the awe I thought I deserved. They fawned over Marina, and she was amazed at the size of our stores, all the waste I saw the other side of. Is it any wonder that I hit her? Well, no good reason, a reason it still is, an awful reason, but still a reason, for the black eye and the married man's anger and his mighty uselessness in the world. So I began to hide again. I kept each new address from Marguerite, and I took rooms at the Y and elsewhere as I searched for other jobs in Dallas. And when I landed one at a printing plant, I learned to forge ID cards. And while I dragged myself among the nameless no-ones who actually seemed to be happy there, I reminded myself that nothing great had ever been achieved by a group. This was why I had soured on Russia, the great individual voice of Marx, isolated in London libraries, had only given way to the sludge of terrified, feeble, mass conformity. At heart, America was no different, with its own demands that amounted to submission and humiliation. And for the masses, Russia was oppressive, while America's great crowds were just poor. None of this is new or original, but when you spend weeks in a rooming house and call for your wife once you've found a job, and the best apartment you can afford is some slum she'll stay up all night scrubbing, when the home you've made is as meaningless as the job you despise every morning, wouldn't you do as I did, and haven't you, by making yourself some easy critic whose opinions for a moment assuage the squalor of another twenty-four hours. I was the coward of my marriage, and I felt out of control, and only hit her. I felt unloved and trapped, and I hit her, and all I did was drive Marina to try and tie a clothesline around her neck, Russian and unwanted and unable to go back home. This poor woman I beat, and who's pregnant again, and who doesn't need my fever 
or ideas, just my love. That's when we made the move to Neely Street, when I ordered the rifle and posed with it in our new backyard, Marina asking why I'm wearing all black, like an idiot. For posterity, I say, but today is forever the only day for her, and that was the great source of our distance. It was the reason I tried to kill Walker, some prominent talking face in the news that means nothing to you now and shouldn't, except that he was a fascist and I missed, firing into a study at his head and splintering the window pane instead. In case I killed him, I left a long note for Marina to collect the clippings from the paper to preserve my writings and where to find me at the city jail if I was arrested taken prisoner, is how I put it, but I only missed, only another failure by inches. Once again I was only a husband, a father on a whole street of fathers, a reader in a whole world of readers, whose body never entered the present, whose mind and body never combined to change the order of things fundamentally, down to the names of streets or the days after, to the irrevocable change of history. On the one hand, I was inspired. I had nearly killed a man and not been caught, not even touched, not even suspected. The meagerness of my life was surrounded by a hint of invulnerability. My miss carried a weight of suggestion, and I took the hint and made for New Orleans. Returning in the spring of 63, I lied my way into a job at a coffee company and began my games, fake names, fake leaflets and organizations, pretending to be both for and against Castro. I took some joy in inciting a brawl, I'm still only 23, remember, and I chose a rest and a booking over easy bail just so I could spend the night lecturing cops and asking for the FBI. It got me on the news and radio. And there's something to hearing your own voice coming through the car as if to everyone. But it was the same manipulation that had gotten me into Russia. And it was the same feeling of sliding by that made me believe I should go to Cuba. But there's a difference between using the media and the police in New Orleans and taking a long bus to Mexico City to con my way over to Cuba. And I should have seen that it wouldn't work. I should have seen that it was history smiling, making me wait a few more months. By then, Marina had returned to Texas and given birth to our second daughter. And on the bus back over the border, I dreamt of the August evenings just past, warm New Orleans nights on the humid porch, dry firing my rifle over and over. Marina, the neighbors, passers-by, the trees, they all heard the endless clicks fill the summer night, and saw my shape there, meditating, my white shirt and dirty pants not glowing beyond anything more than also being poor, my body like theirs, my hands, my eyes too, nothing about me beyond anything of theirs, our lifeless, nameless neighborhoods. And for a moment I may have felt that way dry firing into the empty darkness. But part of me must have known what I was practicing for, and part of them 
must have known how those clicks would echo and re-echo. I wonder if they are thankful or haunted that they stood so close to my livid flame, that they lived so near who I actually was, and do they understand how without warning and how senseless is this animal history? I couldn't see the blood from the window. The car kept going before it sped away, and I never saw the one in pink scream or jump on the trunk to collect the brains. This is what you want me to talk about. You want to know what that window was like, or those that don't believe I was there want to find the holes in how I say it. I told myself I wouldn't soil the moment, but I can say anything and it's still mine. It's still me that was there and no one else. It was my ears that either went silent or suddenly heard every sound in the world. It was my weight that was both bodiless and the next moment never heavier, kneeling in a corner hidden by boxes, the open window in the windowsill, the crowd outside and the crowd in my head, the hundreds and millions all behind me and what I was about to do with those sad limbs I'd been dragging around so long. Limbs now sliding into history, killing a man I didn't really hate, just because he happened to drive by, because I saw the route in the paper, because here was the best chance for me. It is one thing to want, and another to have, the attention of the entire world. I would have thought my act included with it the sudden ability to fly, or that I would sooner evaporate than need a bus or a taxi down on the street. To kill a king among all his minions, and in a town of those who did despise him, and for every hour of his affluent and my indigent life to intersect in some Friday afternoon in November, and for me to be the one so high up, didn't my life discover its structure as I fled that building, perfectly transformed? Didn't the scaffold drop, affirming my soul? I had been born for no other reason, and neither the meaninglessness of normal life or the reality of love I had known made sense with this new moment of having succeeded, of having finally not failed. There is no mysticism in my actions, not the awful impulse in killing Tippett or of being captured at the movies. These aren't symbols. They were just the scenery of an event that didn't involve them. Dallas means nothing with this. Only I do. It's what happens when the world is ruptured. And I both did and didn't want to be caught, or I didn't want to be taken in on some dead suburban street and preferred the public takedown in the crowd, the beating and the drama of being dragged screaming from the theater. That's how I see it, but not how I planned it. Even I am just an interpreter. I have seen from this half-Hades of mine how you found comfort in conspiracy, in some grand plan or dance of background noise, and not just with me, but every event after. Even those who believe me are alarmed that I should have been allowed to do it, that anyone should slip under the curtain the way I did the way of luck and chance, my fingerprints on the rifle from birth. 
I won't talk to you about the FBI. I won't talk to you about the CIA. I won't talk to you about the Mafia. I won't talk to you about the KGB. Whatever mystery that surrounds me is only the same that would surround you if your life were made into a microbe to be studied at the most secret point. But your cynicism and your reason knows that I am the likeliest answer, and how often does that ever happen? You somehow refuse religion as absurd, and yet with me you will believe anything, no matter how baroque or ridiculous, no matter how torturously complex, rather than admit I am the center, the one that's a mess but makes the most sense. If there were other plans, they weren't mine. If there were other attempts, I beat them to it. If there were other groups, I always worked alone. Whatever my associations were, my last human gesture was still the most meaningful and can be contained by no theory. That morning, I left all my money and my wedding ring in a cup and watched her sleep before I destroyed her. If only she had remained in Minsk, and you had never known her name, never heard of her or hounded her about me. I think of how her nose was always cold, and how she never wanted this. History, the worst museum for my wife's body. Was there another life for her in Minsk, where we never met, but, hearing what I did, she still found the photo she was shown handsome? Would her heart have warmed at the thought of me? Was there any way to avoid doing this to her, to our girls June and Rachel, my house of women? I could only fail. I stop here because you wouldn't believe me. Or I can't stop. It was all an act of speech. I did it so I could talk and be heard. I toyed with the Dallas police. I called myself that re-echoed word, a patsy. I looked so calm at their press conferences because I was already planning the great trial. I had the calmness of a man who had come through combat, the calmness of a survivor who now had a measurable power. My every word, whether it were true or false, would cost another man hours of research and try to deny that it doesn't still. I could say anything and plan to do so indefinitely, their minds at my knees. Who had I spoken to in Russia and why? How had I ever made this or that trip? Who paid my way? Who had I seen and known? What had I really done in New Orleans, or really done on the way to Mexico? Where had I been when there were no records of me living at a boarding house, or why? How had I happened to work in that building? How could I have known I would be alone on that sixth floor, just when I needed to be? And apparently pigeons flashed up off the roof, startled into the air by my firing, and I'm surprised no one has tracked them down. But I only lived my moment for two days. It was my mother who spoke to great men, Marguerite, who spoke to the Chief Justice, my old loathsome mother, who put me on record and knew it. She knew this was history for her, as well as me. She was mad Life magazine, got a shot of her adjusting her hose. Dear, dear mother, breeder of the assassin and center of the puzzle, 
like the cup Marina owned that had once belonged to her grandmother, some cup so thin light passed through it like paper. And that's where I put my wedding ring that morning I left her for history, some cup made in 1800s Russia by hands that never knew where it would go, as if any of us ever do. Beware underestimating anything. Beware my pride and chance and obscurity. Beware my faith in the impossible and the illogical and the inane, because it was those same things, the very same, that brought me before a man with a gun, that gave him the same power I also owned, point-blank in the basement of the Dallas PD. I had felt a kind of sympathy with power, which had connections to the highest things, but here some dumb, silly strip club owner could tap into the same and murder me. I am not what you want. I am not what you deserve. You will hate to hear that when I shot Tippett I muttered, poor dumb cop, but it meant more like poor dumb me, poor dumb you, poor dumb us, poor dumb anyone who steps in history's way, in the way of berserker name and power. When my brother came to see me in jail, only the day before, he stared at me as if to see my innocence or guilt. I said, Brother, you won't find anything there. But when Marina came to see me laid out on the slab, she got it right. She opened my dead eyes and said it true. His eyes wet, he cry. For the future, for stupidity, for every half-truth and all half-knowledge, and all the lies and desperate ignorance that become an agent of real power, for steady and terrible suspicion, for the vast reservoirs of ignorance that never empty, only fill and fill, for the love and need of great, dumb leaders, for the lack love and sad need for acclaim. Let the last word of this shoddy gospel be the truth, and let it say that Oswald wept. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to Human Voices Wake Us, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.